You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Jeff Parker, who is a professor of engineering at Dartmouth College, also a visiting scholar and research fellow at MIT, and also the co-author of Platform Revolution, How Network Markets Are Transforming the Economy and How to Make Them Work for You, which, Jeff, is a couple of years old now. You've told me that you're going to revise it, but it seems to have had such an enormous impact. It's almost impossible to talk to business people now without them recognizing that they have to think seriously about converting their businesses into platform businesses. You know, one of the punchlines that I use in, in all of my talks I didn't realize it, but I think I might've either stolen it from you or I might've <laughs> arrived at it at the same time as you. And that is to appropriate Mark Andreessen's famous quote that software is eating the world. And I usually have a slide that says something like platforms are eating the world. And so I, w- I want to talk to you a bit about platforms, but I also want to kind of test the limits of platforms and talk about the extent to which it really does make sense to talk about every business becoming a platform business. At some point, the metaphor starts to encounter some some limits but maybe we can start off by defining the difference between what you refer to as as a pipeline business right and you say that traditional businesses are like pipelines which aligns with the typical value chain the value creation that happens in this linear fashion to this new business model which we call platforms and then we'll talk also about like well what is new and what is not new because Somebody didn't wake up one day and say, let's create a completely new business model. This is something that, that has grown out of organizational forms that have been around for a while. Yeah. So where would you like me to begin? First of all, Greg, great to be with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The book is six years old now and we can go through what we're going to change, but obviously the landscape has changed quite a bit. And really we did a lot of the major writing in the say 2014, 2015 timeframe. And I'd say the platform kind of landscape has exploded along a couple of important dimensions. I think two are worth pointing out in particular. One is that we're seeing an awful lot going on in the B2B space, where I think a lot of what we learned, you'll see are B2C examples, business to consumer, and a lot of the growth and and frankly, a lot of the interest in companies is more on, okay, that's nice, but what looks like my business and my customers or other businesses how does that apply? And so we're doing a lot of research, as you mentioned, through the uh, MIT initiative on the digital economy and, and with a lot of other firms really running those down. And then the other area is just the explosion, I think, of regulatory interest, where we're seeing, for example, the relatively recent Digital Markets Act in the European Commission, the GDPR that was a couple of years before that, and then in California. <laughs> Sort of like things jump from EU to California and back. We'll see where that lands. And if you want to talk a bit more about what we see in that space, let's certainly dive in. Let's get back to some of the conceptual ideas that you introduce in the book, right? So this idea of a pipeline, if you think about a typical company, how does it make sense to think of them as a pipeline? As you said, a typical linear value chain is kind of the way that we've thought about going to market and doing business for a really long time. 
So we think of pipes as the standard way that we've always thought about delivering products and services. You kind of start at the beginning with either an information input, some data, or some news that you'll then collect and analyze and turn that into articles or some sort of intermediate product and then assemble it to a final product. Same thing with manufacturing. You'd start with some kind of raw materials and then create sub-assemblies and then get it all assembled, say, for example, like a car, and then send that out to a consumer. Or if you just want to stay with a, a market context, you might think of a retailer. So a retailer mm -hmm. would purchase something like a television or a book or a shirt and then resell it to an end consumer. And mm -hmm. so all of those are essentially pipes or linear value chains. It's very clear what's the input and what's the output, right? Yes. You're buying some flour and you're buying some sugar and you're buying some eggs and then you're selling cakes, right? And then <laughs> from an operations perspective, it's very clear how. Exactly. And I think that's a really good point is that the flows are pretty clear. They tend to move in one direction and then money moves up to compensate the supply chain part. So the supply goes this way and then the money goes that way. Exactly. Yeah. So that's a metaphor and that kind of long chain form has been around forever. Now, platforms have a more triangular form. There's some sort of intermediary or a market, for example. And so we would recognize this if we were to go back to the year 1000, any village would have market day and they would have buyers and sellers and those buyers and sellers could transact with one another in that village marketplace. And in many ways that has all of the platform features minus a few technological ones, but many of the platform features that we would expect to see today. So for example, you might have the ability to make a contract. So there'd be legal services, or you might have the ability to take out a loan. So there would be financial services. You might, for example, sell forward. So there might be some sort of a futures market. Those would all be services that would come together in this multi-sided platform that was the village market. So you might say, okay, what's the big deal? This is something that's been around for thousands of years, if not more. And I think what's different now is along a few dimensions. So one is that because of network connectivity, we have extended the boundaries of these systems so that they are first regional, then national, and now truly global. And the other is that the system itself ends up providing kind of reusable building blocks of technology or of contracts or services. All of this means that the transaction costs have fallen like a rock. And so that allows scale to occur in ways that we've never saw before. So the network effects, and you should ask me sort of be more specific, but network effects are essentially where the system becomes more valuable as a function of the number of people who use it. They were always there in the village marketplace. You had to have a thick market to exchange, but they were limited by transaction costs. You had a circle around which it made no sense to go to market because it took you more than a day to get there or more than a week to get there, whatever the boundary might be. That's all fallen away. And so now all of a sudden we have this ability to aggregate relatively small network effects across very large numbers of users. So that's frankly changed the economic landscape of the world. You should talk about network effects, but I think economists sometimes when they look at network effects, they think about them as sometimes arising through spontaneous action, right? So for instance, if 
two of us decide to meet in a, some location and start selling things, then sooner or later, other people will start locating in that same place. Or if, if you and I start driving on the right side of the road, then, you know, everybody else is going to start driving on the, and so there's this idea of a spontaneity, but I think more importantly is this idea that you can be an entrepreneur who drives it, or it could be top-down governmental imposition of some rules that will drive these network effects. And so a lot of the book is really about how you can strategically leverage these network effects or jumpstart them. So maybe talk a bit about how you see network effects. You're an engineer. Most of the people that I talk to on the show are, are business people or economists, and they come at it typically from the business perspective, but there's quite a bit of similarities, right, between network effects in systems and network effects in businesses and in marketplaces and economics, right? Great preamble. And I love this idea of kind of almost the accidental network effect or spontaneous that you're getting at. Some of that was trial and learning by doing. What's different now is we have enough examples of businesses that are successful because of network effects that we can reason from that. And we can look at it and say, okay, that's where the source of value is. So the users are getting value from the system, not just by what it does, but also by the presence of other users, and then be super intentional. And as you say, that goes right down to the design. So you have to line up the design of these systems and businesses so that they foster network effects, at least the positive ones. But equally important is to detect negative network effects prevent bad behavior because those are just as deadly as the positive ones are beneficial. And you talk about the chicken and egg problem. And this is something which I talk about all the time in my, my strategy class, right? And I'll, I'll just put some student on the spot and I'll say, okay, so you got to sell the first component, right? <laughs> and then tell me what your conversation sounds like. And, and you mentioned in the book that whoever sold the first telephone should get the uh, award for, <laughs> for a salesperson of all time. But you can come up with this fantastic idea, but how do you take it to market? How do you jumpstart the process? A big part of the book is about this chicken and egg go-to-market strategy. So super point. And of course, I'll give you the economist tesser because I wear that hat sometimes. It depends. It depends on the nature of the transaction and whether the platform itself can enter the supply side. So often one of the best ways to start a platform is to actually be a pipeline. And by that, I mean, get a bunch of users because you were able to create something of value and then get them on board. And then once they're affiliated with your system, yeah. that's the time to open it up so that you can then start to have supply coming, not just from your firm or your organization, but others who can participate. Right. And you point out that Amazon, of course, began its life as, as a pipeline, really. Exactly. And they were a reseller. So they purchased books and then CDs and other kind of easily ordered catalog items, took control of that inventory, resold it to end users. And then the beauty, and I mean, there are a lot of interesting things in what they've done, but that big user base of theirs was attractive to other sellers. And so then they created the systems and tools to give other sellers than themselves access to their buyers. Right. I remember when they first did that, I kept thinking, well, is Amazon, should we think of it as a place where we can source our books or should we think about it as a place where vendors can source distribution? And a lot of it, as an economist, you're always focusing on who's paying whom rather than just looking at the end result. As an economist, you could think, well, the price can just go from positive to negative. 
But there's a real structural difference once you move from a world where everybody is paying in one direction to one where the payments go in, in multiple directions. And just to get back to that marketplace example, the medieval marketplace, there's a key difference between a scenario where the marketplace organizer is paying the provisioners and a world where the provisioners are paying to access the marketplace. Those are structurally different. And the choice that the marketplace would make depends. It's essentially who needs who the most. Do the buyers need the sellers more? Or do the sellers need the buyers more? And so who gets to come in? Imagine that you have the marketplace gated. Well, somebody gets to come in for free and somebody has to pay because the operations of the system have to get accounted for somewhere. Usually in that situation, it's the sellers who end up paying. Mm -hmm. And then they end up allowing the buyers to come in. And then the sellers are essentially paying for the right to get access to the buyers. So you say that you have eight different ways of solving the chicken egg problem. But if this idea of starting as a pipeline is a viable one, then that means there's hope for the vast majority of companies out there that are still pipelines. So one of the examples you use in the book is, is McCormick Foods, right? Here's a company that, yeah. that sells spices. Yeah, that's pretty old school, right? <laughs> I don't know whether you actually worked with them or not, but I can just try to imagine the conversation where you're sitting down with the company that's like making spices and you're saying, hey, you should think of yourself as a platform company, right? What would that even look like? What would the brainstorming exercise look like for a company like that? Yeah. So essentially, I think the way to think about it is how do I find different sources of value that my users and the users can be on the supply side or, or on the demand side can take advantage of that will make it stickier. So here, if you end up creating this user to user experience, and so that's this notion of recipe innovation and then allowing for sharing among the consumers of the spices, then that makes them naturally want to affiliate with that system. And so that's additional sources of value. And what's wonderful about it is it doesn't cost the company anything other than the kind of fixed cost of the infrastructure to set it up. So that's, I thought, pretty neat. And you can take that metaphor, and I've seen it in other materials industries. So if essentially spices and materials. And so chemical firms, so BASF, for example, is trying to think through its platform opportunities where it would use its digital twin, if you will, of materials as kind of the core that says, hey, now you can mix and match and specify materials and then do simulation of how that would work in a manufacturing environment. And here's where the fuses will break for the firms. A decision is, do you only sell your own materials or is it more important to have the customer relationship, which means then that you cross-sell. Mm -hmm. And so I, I just did a fireside chat with Gilbert Rule, who was CEO of Klockner Steel for about 12 years. And that's exactly what he, he did. As part of the digital transformation process, they built a marketplace. And on that marketplace, they invited competitors. Mm -hmm. And so you can well imagine the difficult conversations among some of the business unit leads when literally they view people who their mission in life is to prevent them from selling to their customers. You're giving them direct access to the customers. You have to imagine then that they're thinking of other revenue streams or other ways of kind of stickiness that you would want to keep that customer, that user in your orbit. Mm -hmm. But in that case, it's the platform owner that has the direct relationship with the customer, right? That's key. They're the ones that have the first party 
customer data. And so, you know, we think about a company that delivers food, right? If I'm McDonald's and I use one of these providers to deliver my food to the customer, if they place the order with me and then I send the order over to Grubhub, that's very different than if they place the order with Grubhub, which then turns around and places the order with McDonald's, right? And so are you seeing companies, everyone's trying to kind of leapfrog everyone else to be the one that sits at the customer base? Absolutely. And I think it's absolutely a race and a fight for control of that customer facing layer. Mm -hmm. So I love your Grubhub and McDonald's example. I'll give you another one. It's in the TV and cable space. So on my system upstairs, I'll have tons of different subscription services, Hulu and HBO and Netflix and Amazon, et cetera, et cetera. What I think is really interesting is what Comcast has done with their voice technology. And so in a specific realm, they've done a pretty neat job on the artificial intelligence side of creating a voice interface. You can search for something. Mm -hmm. You just push the remote and you search for it. And then it sifts through all of your rights Mm -hmm. and all the different systems, and then it presents it. So then all of a sudden, what happened? They just shoved all of those different services one layer under and created a new customer interface layer. That's pretty cool. Right. So that's kind of the shift from the horizontal stack to the vertical stack and then back again. And so Netflix created the integration layer, which allowed you to access all the different content from all the different studios, right? And then all the studios decided to withdraw from Netflix, go direct to the customer. And now the customer is faced with this bewildering array of apps that they have to somehow remember, connect with different content. And then that creates a demand for a new kind of integration layer. And it sounds like Comcast is is stepping into that breach. But you could imagine someone like Netflix saying, we're going to shut off access. We don't want Comcast doing this. We can deny them through terms of service access to our API. And then you'll be forced to go to Netflix first. I mean, this is kind of Southwest pulling out of Kayak and and Orbitz or wanting to drive you to their app directly. Do you see this as sort of a, a constant back and forth between everyone trying to do this. And another great story is this company called Segment. I don't know if you know these guys, but their goal was to become the one-stop shop for all marketing apps, right? So, you know, if you're a CMO, you have all these different data streams coming in and then you have all these different apps. And so you have all these engineers that are stitching together all the different data streams to all the different apps. And so they're like, oh, look, we'll just create like a hub and spoke thing. So you only have to put stuff in here. And then we have the app store. And of course, I think Adobe was like, wait, hold on. We have a full suite of marketing products. We were not really keen on being part of this app store. We'd like you to come directly to us. And then that creates a bit of a conflict because everyone wants to be the one that's that's right in front. Super notion, this idea that you're going to get cycling. And part of it is if you start to see customer drop-off because you added transaction costs, and that's what your Netflix example was, was literally just adding a cost to the end user. Maybe they're big enough to get away with it. Maybe they're not. I think a smaller network would have a hard time dictating those terms. A larger network might get away with it, but if you aggregate enough small bits of content, then it can start to look like a much bigger thing. So to your point, I think you see ebbs and flows on that. In your book, it's just as important. You talk about lock-in, but then you talk about kind of failed lock-in, right? And you talk about positive network effects, and then you talk about negative network effects. And you use some examples, right? We think of MySpace, how MySpace fumbled the ball, 
relative to Facebook. The book is rife with examples, but in terms of failure to launch in this space of trying to create a platform, what are some of the pitfalls that companies typically make? Yeah, the ones that I think are really deadly are where they try to capture value before they create it for users. And that's a cautionary tale, I think, especially for incumbents who are pipeline firms. Then they analyze, they dream up some total addressable market and they get starry-eyed and get all excited about that. And then they go after it and then they figure out all their monetization models and they have a bunch of their finance folks cranking away at spreadsheets. And it all looks wonderful. But of course, as you said at the beginning, you still have to deliver value to a user. And I love what Ming Zheng told us. He spoke for us at one of our platform summits several years ago. He was the chief strategy officer for Alibaba. He's like, people don't buy a platform. They buy what it can deliver in products or services. And kind of losing track of that, what's the user problem that you're trying to solve? What's a solution you can put in place? How do you know that that's working? And none of that sounds like platform, and it shouldn't. That's really being good at product, but that comes before. And I think sometimes the failure points are trying to extract value at the idea of the end state of the system. Like imagine that it's up and running and this is wonderful. Yeah, but at the beginning it's not. And so you've got to lead those consumers and users on your journey. Well, and Alibaba, of course, is a great example because they came into a market that was already dominated by eBay in China. And I think eBay may have thought they had the whole thing locked up given the success that they had at achieving more or less monopoly status in the U.S. Yeah, and not so much. <laughs> right. What were the mistakes that eBay made? I don't have enough detail on the China example, so I'd be remiss to try to really run that one down. Mm -hmm. But I think more broadly, the failure points, as you say, you see them in lots of places. One of them is this failure to deliver the right value. I think another one is not understanding who needs who, and it's literally not measuring where the network effects are likely to come from, and so potentially monetizing in the wrong area. Another one that I think is important is when your revenue side is somebody else's subsidy side, that's a recipe for disaster. Mm -hmm. If somebody else has identified your user base and said, actually, they're my free side because I'm monetizing them through some other mechanism, that's pretty tough to compete. And so you get to think, well, okay, now you go back to what's the value proposition? Do I really need to monetize directly? And if I do, then how do I overcome this other version of whatever my product or service is that's literally free? Mm -hmm. You give an example of how you can piggyback on other networks, right? So I think probably the most well-known example is how Airbnb did a lot of early customer acquisition through Craigslist, where they just kind of yeah. scraped Craigslist and just sort of said, well, okay, these guys already have the network. People are already going there. It sucks, but people are going there because they know that's where everything is. And so if we can just sort of insert ourselves into that network and skim off all the incoming traffic, then we can bootstrap our network. Do networks need to keep an eye out for that and prevent others from just coming in and swallowing up all their user base? So absolutely. I think you've got to be aware of what's happening on your network. That's part of the organizational muscle that needs to be built by a firm is these detection mechanisms. And I'd like to think that that's in effect a variation of disintermediation 
where other firms are trying to peel transactions off platform that really should occur on platform. And so that's always a danger where once you make a match, then if the parties want to transact in the future, they'll just transact with one another directly. It's that early on, first of all, the identification and then learning to trust one another where the platform adds a lot of value. Depending on the nature of the transaction, it may not add as much value down the road. And so that's the area where you really need to be careful in the, the monetization, because if you take too much of a rake, then sure, they're going to disappear. And so all of, I'd say, the intellectual work, the knowledge work types of platforms are in danger of that kind of disintermediation. If you take too high of a percentage cut, then people will just transact directly. Right. Like Upwork or I think Homejoy, a couple of these other thumbtack, right? So yep. if there's an ongoing relationship at stake, then if you can't monetize it upfront with the intro, but of course no one's going to pay upfront for a big intro if they don't really know. I mean, if you're buying a house, then you have some expectation you're going to live in this house for a long period of time. Right. I mean, that's just part of the design of the system then is to anticipate that. So you referred to platform strategy is like three-dimensional chess and kind of regular strategy is one-dimensional chess. And I think part of this has to do with the idea that competing in an industry versus competing in an ecosystem is very different. And I think you even say somewhere that management of externalities is really kind of a key leadership skill. And it's different from kind of managing an organization that has clear boundaries and clear chain of command and so forth, because every single component of that production process is, is more or less engaging in a kind of a spot market transaction, right? And so they, they are continually in danger of, of peeling off and bypassing you in some way. Yeah. And again, if we go back to incumbent firms that have run successful operations, they've got people who know exactly what they're doing in running a more pipeline business, they can end up having some blinders on this one where there are investments that need to be made in the organization around how do I engage the ecosystem? How do I detect when things are going wrong? And you'd say, hey, isn't that what our marketing and sales functions have done always? And I'd say, sure, but mostly on the buyer side. In the platforms, the other side, the supplier side, is to be treated as a valued customer as well. Because if you lose them, then the thing can start to spiral down. So, I mean, one approach is to say, Let's take the skills and the capabilities that we've used in marketing up until now, and let's just kind of drag and drop it over into supplier relationships or drag and drop it over to employee relationships. Let's just have a dozen different marketing departments that cover all of the potential sides of our, our business, right? And all the different groups of complementers that we have. I mean, is that a sensible approach or is there something different about the marketing itself that has to change once you're a platform? So where I'd say there's a big difference is in the self-serve notion of a platform, because if you want to keep transaction costs low, then having kind of traditional marketing and sales teams mm -hmm. that have these long sales cycles doesn't scale. And so I'd say that's where one of the big differences would be that it's kind of more inbound. So firms that have already mastered that are kind of ready. But if you look, for example, at the switchover of point-to-point -point connections to a more usable application programming interface. So we get a little weedy here, but the notion that you could expose services and data through something that you could publish that anybody could connect to mm -hmm. and it's standard. Well, that 
implies some sort of a setup. So I've got to be able to go there, get myself registered as a developer or, or something, and get it provisioned and figure out whatever the, the payment might be. That should all happen in seconds, minutes, hours at the most, not days, weeks, and months, where in the old world, to bring on a supplier meant like this big systems integration challenge. And that's just one giant transaction cost. So I think part of the difference is there. Well, you bring up this idea of API, and I think maybe 25 years ago, that might have been a little bit in the weeds and a little nerdy. But when I work with companies, I say, hey, listen, I don't care how technical you are or how non-technical you are. You need to understand how APIs work. This is sort of the connective tissue and the building block of every company now. And I, I take that same slide that says platforms are eating the world, and I, I cross that out and I put APIs are eating the world. But you also mentioned that the concept of, of APIs, this is not just for software. The idea of modularity has been around for a long time. And even before APIs were a thing, right, there was this notion that you need to have standardized interfaces to scale, to grow, to work well with others. You articulate the famous memo, right, the Andy Jassy memo and the, the Yegi memo at Google, which was really, I think, a real seminal moment certainly out here in, in Silicon Valley, how important is it for a typical business leader to understand how APIs work conceptually and how integral they are to the organization of business? So let me answer that. Let me try an idea out on you. So I think it's super important, but not at the weedy level of explain OAuth to me or some of the, the actual code and how this thing is built, but more about how do I move the organization and my verticals from consuming services from any vendor that will sell to them to consuming more standardized services? So this is a typical challenge. I'm going to take the organization to the cloud. Great. I'm going to have this horizontal data layer system because I've learned that that's how platforms work. And then you can build lots of great stuff on top of it. All makes sense. But then the devil is in how do you migrate the existing systems over. And so it's that reusability mm -hmm. that is part of the deduplication, if you will, because once you mount up this new cloud system, now you're running two and you're mm -hmm. incurring all of that cost. So there has to be a timeline and a pathway to turn it off the old stuff. And it's going to be the standardized APIs that make that transition path cheaper, faster, quicker. Mm -hmm. And so that gets pretty expensive and depending upon the firm and the scale, we may be talking hundreds of millions or in some cases, billions of dollars. And that's a boardroom and a management team set of issues. Yeah. You cite the famous memo and one line of which is that every one of these interfaces has to be externalizable. I kind of dig into this point a lot in my classes, right? This idea that you don't know ahead of time the purposes to which some functionality might be put. And so you don't know who your, your customer might be. It might be the person down the hall, or it might be a person on the other side of the planet. It might be someone who's internal, someone who's external. And so you have to have that switch, that on-off switch. How important is that, right? I mean, obviously, if you're a platform company, everything has to be externalized, but at least those things that are building blocks of your platform. But we don't know ahead of time the exact configuration right? If you think you know what the business model is on day one, then you're deluded, right? So yeah. you need to have this flexibility 
and Amazon's had they converted from using primarily FedEx and UPS to primarily internal delivery, and they did this in a relatively seamless and painless way, I think, because of this architecture. Yeah, so let's go to that issue of externalizable, because I think that decision is a really interesting one. It didn't say that every API will be exposed publicly, just that it be designed so that it can be. And I think it's that optionality that's really important. And I think that optionality is a way to think about the investments in technology that would even facilitate a platform. And so a lot of times what you'll see in technology investment scenarios and justifications is you'll have some sort of ROI. It'd be like, this is the benefit, either on a cost savings or a revenue increase. This is the cost. This is the payback period. We'll either do this or we won't. That's a point solution. And that's Mm -hmm. kind of applicable, again, in the ways that we built these pipeline businesses. Once you start investing in infrastructure, and that's exactly what that externalizable API is, now you're entering a different kind of financial model. You're really building an options model that Mm -hmm. says, well, I don't really know what the future is, but I'm going to close off some paths of potential payoff unless I incur this expense to make this generalizable. And so that then says, hey, I've got a different investment kind of way or model that I need to start thinking about. And you could see that in that memo, I think, right there. Right. And so I think there's a general principle here, which is that in a world where there's a lot of uncertainty, investing in in something that doesn't have this optionality is going to probably in the long run cost you. And so you have to think about it from day one. How do you retroactively take something that was built in a more appliance-like format and convert it into this modular system? It's interesting. Some things actually do just need to do a single thing and do it really well. And then other things can be built in this kind of more modular format. So I think it's being intentional about where you need to be delivering basic electricity and just do it at scale, basic compute, do it at scale versus, okay, now I've got to have this mix and match reusability. And that's where I'm going to invest in making that possible. But I think that the byproduct of this organizational architecture is that you're you're facilitating the creation of these internal marketplaces, right? So you have, essentially, if you're working in, in an organization that's organized like this, each employee has kind of an app store where it's full of native apps that they can use as building blocks for whatever it is that they're trying to accomplish within the organization, right? So I love that metaphor. And I, I know one organization, I'm not going to name them. It's a large one that you'd be familiar with, but they're working on their artificial intelligence and machine learning systems. And, and they're trying to basically centralize those, but not by force. It's sort of offer some candy. And so here, for example, are standardized templates. They're standardized models. Here are data sets that you can use and we can help you, or you can just take this and mix and burn. And oh, by the way, if you need to productize it and make it repeatable, there's going to be help with that. And that's trying to take a big organization that's been in business for many decades and bring them to this reusable modular concept. And then the final part of that is, and then the models go back into the store, if you will, for consumption by others. So that you try to harness the learning that occurs in one division or in one area 
and expose that for others. Right. And it's kind of like treating the internal people like customers, right? And that is a huge point. And when we talked earlier about this idea of product before platform, it's that point that I think gets lost. You'll say, who's the customer for this thing? And then they'll go to the end. They go, well, it's this person that buys from our company. It's like, really? Wow. What was the problem that you were trying to solve that they had? Oh no, that's not what we were doing. We were working with our internal team and then we're going to help them reach the end user. Ah, so your user and your customer is actually internal. Yeah. You know, that customer mentality, making sure that you're always thinking about everybody you interact with as a customer, metaphorically, it orients the way you think about the product. Hugely. It's even more important than that because it changes the way you measure success. Mm -hmm. And that's critical, especially at launch. Because if you're worrying too much about, hey, did I crack that giant total addressable market? Sure, when the system is mature, it better be getting an ROI. But at the beginning, mm -hmm. it's got to be a lot simpler. As in, did the end user, even if that's an internal one, like it? Did it actually solve their problem? Did they have a choice or did I just ram it down their throat? Because if they had a choice, then did they actually choose mine? So I want to talk a bit about metrics because we talk a lot about user growth and we talk a lot about comparing customer acquisition cost and lifetime value. Of course, there's virtually no way to know what lifetime value is at the beginning. And user growth could be misleading, right? If we think about MoviePass, right? So MoviePass was... Yeah, that's a classic. <laughs> spectacular, spectacular failure, right? But by some metrics, they look really successful in, in the early days. So how do you know whether you are actually creating something that has the lock-in features, that has the characteristics of a network that's designed to last. <laughs> so first of all, you're, you're right. Measuring network effects, I think, is one of the, the grand econometric challenges for my economist friends. So I'm looking forward to seeing them continue to improve that art. But if you think about the metrics, so yeah, just raw numbers of users is kind of pointless because that doesn't tell you why they're with your system. Mm -hmm. That doesn't tell you what value they're getting from it. It doesn't tell you the level of engagement. It doesn't tell you whether they're recommending this system to others, people like them, if you will. So those are some areas you'd look at literally activity. You'd look at engagement. You'd look at drop-off or growth in usage are a few things. And then I think another one is if you think about these systems as designed to make matches, where are the failures? When did people search for something and fail to find it? Mm -hmm. And those are areas where you have to pay a lot of attention to. I think one of the most interesting issues in the design of, of a platform is this idea of openness versus control. And obviously there's a spectrum and there's also a bunch of different dimensions along which you can be more open or more closed. You distinguish this idea of sponsorship versus management, and I thought this was a unique contribution. Could you talk a bit about what are the trade-offs? Because the answer is, of course, it depends. What are the trade-offs yeah. between having a more open system, and are there specific sectors or specific types of matching or products that are more amenable to open governance versus something more closed? Yeah, so you raise a super point, and it's probably worth just explaining it to your viewers. The notion of the sponsorship is that entity that essentially controls and does rule setting. 
So they mm-hmm. control the trajectory of the platform. They get to decide what the standards are. We're going to operate in pounds or dollars or euros and what the technology footprint or trajectory will look like. But critically, who gets to play? And then kind of what the rules of the game are. Then the next layer, and we were really interested, and this is work that goes back to Marshall and I worked with Tom Eisenman really in the early 2000s to kind of help tease this apart. And we had this interesting notion of some organizations and platforms, they split that role. Mm -hmm. And so they have maybe a single firm that sponsors and then lots of firms that can provide. And at the time, there was still the kind of operating system wars. So we used, for example, Microsoft Intel as the partnership that sponsored. And then all the equipment makers were the end providers. Similarly, you might think of Android as a sponsor of the operating system and then lots of handset providers. We can talk about sort of the strengths and weaknesses of that example. Or you've got Apple, iOS, they own the kind of IP and the rights around the system. And they also have declared that they will alone supply the customer facing at least equipment. So different choices. And then you ask, well, why? Well, sometimes you can't go it alone. And so, for example, we used the Visa example where one bank could try to sponsor one credit network, Mm -hmm. but you could have an awful lot of competing credit networks. So that was going to be hard to get scale. And so by having them jointly sponsor one standard, it was a lot easier to mobilize both users of credit and then acceptors on the merchant side. Mm -hmm. And so in that situation, the kind of one bank was never going to be big enough to go it alone. Right. We have situations where Facebook, for instance, was kind of an open free-for-all initially. And then, it, well, actually, I mean, it started closed in terms of its membership with Harvard and then opened up to anybody. But in terms of extension developers, it was more open initially with Zynga and everybody else jumping in and Cambridge Analytica. And then they closed that port down somewhat. But then we have other stories where Apple, for instance, with the iPhone 1 that had almost entirely native apps, Google sort of honorary native app, and then it opened up, but it's still not quite as open as the Android store. They went from being much more permissive in terms of their licensing of the operating system to being a little bit more controlled. So I think it's kind of hard to draw some general rules about the degree of openness. I remember when I first started teaching about the Betamax story, which occurred around the same time as the near death of the Apple ecosystem, everyone was arguing that openness, 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 as much openness as you can, you might have to give up some of the, the profit, but it's really the only way to establish these things. I think we have a much more nuanced understanding at this point. Fully. And I think what's fascinating is that successful examples can coexist. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't think anybody would now say, oh, that was the only path to go open. I do think that if you have an established network that's, again, like the Apple iOS, you're a lot more likely to be able to enter the market with the open coalition strategy. And then if you think about the way that they did that, they ran a bunch of contests to create different apps by category. But on the supply side for the handsets, I think there's a really interesting story where they created essentially reference designs that they just open sourced. Said, hey, here, take it. And that way we'll incur some of the fixed engineering costs to make sure that we'll have an adequate supply of devices that can run this thing. Now, look, at the heart of all of this is data. 
and you make that point repeatedly through the book, that at a fundamental level, all of these platforms are sustained by the data that they gather, right? And they can use this for a variety of purposes, not just as do the gatekeeping better, to do the matching better, to kind of curate the flow of products better. But this also then is a rebirth of this resource-based view of the firm, right? So we talk about how the resource-based view of the firm has been replaced by this different view, but then the resource view is making a comeback, but the resource is, is the data. And in that view, I guess it's old now, but that view of strategies dictates where you can win. It dictates kind of what are the adjacencies, what's the shape of the firm, right? Where are you going to go? Where can this data be redeployed? But ex ante, it's kind of hard to tell, right? I mean, if we look at the configuration of, say, Tencent in China, it's like, okay, messaging plus transactions. That makes perfect sense. But then you go over to the U.S. and you're like, but wait, messaging and transactions aren't under the same roof. Hmm, that's weird. And then it's like, oh, operating system and search, they make perfect sense, but you don't see that in China. Is there some degree of contingency here in terms of how firms leverage the data that they're collecting? How do you strategically think about the different paths that you can take with your platform once you've started to ingest mass amounts of data? Super question. And I think your point about it, there isn't a general rule here that's going to be satisfactory. I think part of it is going to be regional. So for example, there were many fewer restrictions on what could be done with data in China. That's starting to change now. And you can kind of run down the rationale for that. But I think firms were much freer to share data, to recombine it, to use it for all kinds of purposes, targeting, marketing, create new services in China than they were in the, in the U.S. and Europe, but really in the U.S. So that's part of the story. I think there's been, I don't know if a weird restraint. If you look at the big firms, they have probably stuck to their lanes more than you might have expected relative to this white hot competition that you see in China, where that is just a super tough market. And so the firms that emerge are uh, victors among thousands. And yeah, when I think about Amazon, it's like, I mean, network television makes perfect sense for Amazon, right? I mean, they can, they know exactly what you're going to buy and you know, they could do the attribution, yeah. right? It's like pretty simple. You know, you run an ad and then you're like, oh, boom. And you buy it like two seconds later. I mean, it would make perfect sense for them to be just running network television, but they don't. So they are exercising some restraint, it seems. Well, yes and no, right? Because we don't actually know what's going on in there in the sense that they can easily do product placement and shows. Mm -hmm. and get all that same attribution. So that's interesting. And we certainly know in the social media firms that ads in the social media can now be tracked directly to point of sale. And so that technology has been in place for years. So there's a pretty strong feedback loop. Now, one of your chapters, you talk about governance, and I like this discussion because it says that, look, these things are governance institutions, right? And governance is really the key challenge that most of the challenges associated with building out successful platforms are not technological ones, that we more or less have the technology. There's about identifying the opportunities. There's about getting the go-to-market right, getting the pricing right. And we talked about all that, but at the end of the day, it really boils down to governance. And if the governance is wrong, then the whole thing falls apart. And you use analogies to governments. Governments have a few tools available to them that the platforms don't have. But what kind of metaphors should we be thinking about when we think about platform governance? 
I'll answer that, but I think this interplay of platform governance and literally national governments is an interesting one. So the way that I think about platform governance is, do they have rules essentially to ensure fair treatment of users? This is like almost like due process. Exactly. Is there due process? And do they have the ability to actually credibly deliver that? So if you have a dispute, is there a resolution mechanism? If they said they're going to charge 10% or whatever, did they or did they charge 50? If they said they weren't going to basically replicate your technology and sort of destroying your particular app or business, did they adhere to that in a credible way? So that's the governance side. I think where it gets interesting is on the national government side to look at whether the platform, A, has governance principles that make sense. So they're not all about self-dealing and sort of the attempt to maintain dominance or abuse dominance. And if so, do they actually adhere to them? Then probably less heavy-handed regulation, whereas others that don't have those are asking for external intervention. Yeah. I wonder if there's going to be a new area of law, and maybe Marshall could speak to this better, but if there's a new area of law called platform law, because corporate law emerged out of a need for people to be able to pool resources as, as investors, right? And so we have this default law that allows us to arbitrate disputes whenever there's a conflict between the holders of the majority and the holders of the minority of the shares in a company. And so because you bring together all of these different participants into this governance structure, having some background laws that could be leaned on to help make the system beneficial for everybody might be useful. At the moment, it seems that all of the, the rules are created by the platform sponsor for the most part. And I think you're really starting to see a lot of action in this space. So if you look at the Digital Markets Act and the European Union, I'd say that's trying to take this issue head on. There's some things in that that don't necessarily make 100% sense, but a lot of it does in the sense of thinking, well, how do you think about data? Who owns it? How do you ensure fair access? How do you think about self-preferencing? And is that always harmful? Or in fact, was it the case that the platform offered the best deal for a particular end user? And then what are the dynamics? If that's true in time period one, does that sort of lead to trouble down the road? So yeah, I think I just laid out the Lawyers and Platform Economists Full Employment Act. Yeah. Because kind of nailing all of this down, it's going to take a lot of analysis and effort. Well, all the people who are in this new antitrust movement are arguing that these monopolies are here to stay and that we need to regulate them. But there's a whole group of people who would say, well, not so fast, right? These things aren't as locked in as they appear. And they can point to examples of how Microsoft's dominance in operating system space kind of eroded and and how if Apple gets too abusive towards its developers, then they just switch to Android. Or you can look at the collapse of things like Lotus 1, 2, 3 and say, well, that should have, in theory, been locked in forever and it disappeared pretty quickly. So do you see these platforms as being kind of less or more vulnerable than the consensus appears to be? So I had a conversation with Farhad Manju, the New York Times columnist, about five years ago, mm -hmm. and he had just written his column on, I think, the Frightful Five, which you will all recognize, the GAFM, arguing exactly what you just said, that these are qualitatively different, and they're likely to be around for a long time. 
So my take was, well, history is long, <laughs> hasn't been written yet, and not so fast. And then they have done nothing but sort of explode and skyrocket. <laughs> you have to have a certain humility in, in reflecting on, on what you say. But that being said, we've got a lot of interesting new technologies. We might have mm -hmm. quantum computing coming on. We've got all of this biotechnology, which is a whole explosive new space. We've got what's very likely to be this kind of rise of internet of things, B2B, machine to machine. It's, I think, fanciful to think there are only five or 10 firms on planet Earth that are going to play in sort of these super high growth areas. And we'll probably start to see the limits of ad-sponsored revenue models, mm -hmm. especially in some of these other contexts. And so you have to believe there will be space and you can kind of see the gathering steam of competition, especially around this industrial side. Now, at the end of the book, you, you point to the future and, and you say, well, there are three industries that seem to be resisting the platform revolution in their healthcare, finance, and education. I think we've seen a lot of changes in the world of finance, but healthcare and education still seem to be a little sticky. I mean, obviously Coursera is one example in education, but healthcare, as someone who had the same tooth x-rayed like five times by five different dentists in the span of a week, there's clearly some room for improvement in healthcare. And of course, these are regulated industries. But I mean, education is not quite as regulated. So one would think that education would move more quickly to the platform business model. What's the holdback in education? I actually asked David Yaffe the same question a couple of days ago, right? What is holding us back in education? Why don't we have a more modular system here? Why don't we have the emergence of new platform. I mean, in India, you have Baiju, I see, is turning into something like this platform, but why don't we have that in education? Great question. And I think it really goes to what's the value proposition? And so if you think for your average 18 to 22-year-old, sure, the learning is part of the value proposition, but it may not even be central. And I just had the last of my two kids complete college, and for sure, they learned a lot. But for sure, they wanted to be there with the other young people mm -hmm. on premises, bouncing off of each other. So that on education, I think, is part of it, at least for the young folks. I think where the real action is likely to happen is going to be in the lifelong learning space, if you will. And where we're likely to see innovation is this idea of kind of stackable credentialing. And I think Coursera mm -hmm. maybe even coined that term, who knows, but they've certainly used it. And once you can get away from the notion that, hey, the only person that's competent to do a thing is somebody who has a degree from Grand University, ABC, which is, should be roundly laughed out of the room at this stage anyway, to more demonstrable skills. Now, that works great for things like coding or things that are relatively easily measured. So where these systems have to go is how do I measure stick to itiveness, mm -hmm. grit, if you will, Ability to play well with others. Teaming. Well, the current educational system doesn't do that. We don't do a very good job <laughs> of measuring that either, right? So Fair enough. Fair enough. Anything will do better than what we've got. I think we'll start to see it, but kind of the last to go, in my belief, is the kind of 18 to 22-year-old, just because there's such a strong, it's a natural life cycle to want to get out of mom and dad's house or whatever the family unit might be. Yeah. You could unbundle that and then come up with new types of bundles, right? Oh, trust me. 
And the experiment we just ran with COVID, I think, is very, very instructive to say, well, what parts of that actually worked pretty well and what parts of that were just terrible? And some of what we did online was actually pretty effective. And so I'll give an example. I teach a data analytics course, so R and Python and machine learning and all kinds of fun stuff. So when you do it online on Zoom, which it was on Zoom, everything is videoed. Mm-hmm. And then I use like a little pen and stylus if I want to do some writing or equations or something, and then I'm banging away on a keyboard. And so that's all recorded. And so what the kids do is they go back and then that becomes a reusable resource that they go back to again and again and again. Yeah. It's like the textbook. Yeah. If I had just done it in class, it would come and it would go. And so in many ways, the experience for the learner was better in that environment. I mean, certainly the social experience was better in person. But the learning might well have been improved. And so how can we kind of harness that, but also mix it with the social? Yeah. But I think universities are still in this pipeline model. As someone who has been affiliated with many institutions of higher learning from MIT and kids that went to Princeton and then uh, I work at Dartmouth, I spent a lot of my career as a faculty member at Tulane. They're not always innovating at the highest rates, to say the least. Yeah, if you look, the institutions have inertia, which is both helpful. So they're conservative. They protect their brands. I think you refer to it as the organizational metabolism, I think, in the book. <laughs> I like that term. But on the other hand, COVID was the thing that made them actually experiment. I think that pushed everybody in higher ed forward by a decade. Well, Jeff, look, this has been great. I can't wait until you revise the book because the examples in here, there's tons of examples in here, but there's so many examples that have happened since publication that you can add into the next edition. It's really been a treat chatting with you. Hope we can uh, catch up again soon. Well, Greg, thank you so much for having me and really appreciate the support and interest in the book because honestly, it's a big lift to do a, a revision and the fact that there's interest and demand in that sort of gives us the push that we need to get it done. I should also mention the event that you have every year, right? The platform conference. Was it online this year? It was online. And that's an interesting thing because to those learnings, we'll probably keep it hybrid from now on. Yeah. Because we've tripled our participation or even more as a result of it being online. Yeah. Make sure I'll put a link to that conference in the podcast webpage. But again, thanks so much for joining me. All right. Well, thank you for reaching out. This was great. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.